should introduce myself a second ago. If we haven't met, my name is Adam, and it's my joy to be the senior pastor here at our church. My family is experiencing a new thing. My son is part of a soccer team for the first time. He's seven. So a couple weeks ago, we got signed up for uh, the Kearney City uh, Rec League, part of the seven, eight, and under group. And so we are embarking on a new adventure. Now, all of the volunteers, excuse me, all of the coaches in the, in the Kearney League are volunteers. God bless them. So a couple weeks ago, Justin is our coach, and he knows I'm doing this, by the way. Uh, he called us up and just kind of telling us when practice would be and introducing himself and all that. And of course, we get to chatting. Now, find out that Justin and his wife are here uh, temporarily because they are missionaries stationed in uh, the Sudan. Oh, wow. So at this point, I feel comfortable enough disclosing that I am a pastor. <laughs> I don't always lead with that because then people apologize for using a cuss word or something like that. Uh, or they tell me how long it's been to church and why, since they've been to church and why. So we chatted a little bit. Great guy. I'm just like, hey man, whatever you need, thinking like, I can bring juice boxes. We can host a barbecue. Whatever, whatever you want, uh, I, we want to help you out. So I think we kind of developed a little bond, not only because he was new at this and so was I, but we were both Christians, right? We we're on both Team JC. So Jesse James Park, this was like 10 days ago. First practice ever, we get out there. Okay, we got him to the right field, check. All right, now I'm good. Well, maybe not. Because Justin, he comes over to me at the beginning of practice and he kind of sidles up a little bit. And I'm like, he starts giving me the rundown of what we're doing at practice. And, and my, my, my anxiety is growing, right? I'm like, you know, I'm recoiling physically, doing the limbo, avoiding him. And then he says, oh, and in and, and, and this part, oh, we're going to split up the kids into two groups. Like, would you mind taking a group of kids? Do I look like I know a lot about soccer? Oh, I'm terrified. I have no idea what I'm doing. First practice ever. I don't want to embarrass my kid. This is the worst. I'm not cut out for this. Oh, it was awful. Now, my guess is that a lot of us would experience that same sequence of emotions if I said to you, go make a disciple. I'm hitting, hitting you with it quick today, aren't I? <laughs> Buckle up, right? Go make a disciple. A lot of us would be like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's leave that to the professionals, right? I'm not prepared to do that. Isn't we, wasn't that why we pay you the professional, right? I hope that one thing you hear me say often, if, if you don't remember much of what we talk about on Sundays ever, I, I do hope you'll remember this. You don't have to be a pastor to be in ministry. That is a firm conviction of mine. And what I hope we'll discover today as we study God's word is that Jesus starts with follow me and ends with go. In this long story short series, we've been looking at the, the grand story of God found in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from the first book of the Bible until the end, here in just a couple weeks, from start to finish, the Bible is a collection of 66 books. It's written by over 40 authors. It was written across continents in different languages. There's different types of literature in the Bible. We can really think of it like its own library. There's poetry, history, law, prophecy, letters. And despite all of these differences, it tells one unified story. The Bible is the story of God pursuing people to be in right relationship with him. 
So each week we've been exploring a theme of the Bible and then inviting you to dig a little deeper throughout the week. We've got Zoom groups you can find on our website. I host a Facebook live stream on Tuesday night at seven. We also record that and send it out in the newsletter if you can't make it live. Or, and that's, you can find that on our, uh, through our webpage. Last week, I was so happy. We actually had uh, our previous senior pastor, Spencer Smith, was my guest. And we had an awesome time talking about uh, the resurrection. And, and it was really, really fun to hear from him. This week, uh, I'm going to welcome Debbie Bazard. She's our uh, a person in charge of outreach and mission. And you'll see why uh, she's going to make a great guest on Tuesday. So I'd love to have you for that. But so far in this series, we've looked at the roots of the people of Israel from their beginnings with a single person in Abraham to, to Abraham who received a promise from God, I will make you father of many nations and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. We've traced the progress of that promise to the multiplication of people in Egypt and their slavery, to their escape from Egypt, to, to their wandering and, and wanting of a king and, and how that didn't go well for them. And over and over, how they've experienced hardship at the hands of these other powers of the ancient Near East. And how their expectations for a king were not met when he actually showed up. And how Jesus came as their Messiah, but they didn't understand what that meant. And he was rejected and executed an innocent man on the cross, only to be raised three days later. Now talk about long story short, what was that, like a minute 10? That's not bad. That's not bad. Well, what, after, what came next after Easter? That's what we're looking at today. So we're going to be reading from Matthew 28. This is the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. That's a word that simply means good news, this gospel. There's four gospels that make up the beginning of the second half of the Bible called the New Testament. And these gospels, these, these books, are about the good news of Jesus Christ, his biography, his life, and death and resurrection. Now, some of us have heard this before. This is a very famous passage called the Great Commission, but others of us may be hearing this for the first time. And so if there were to be a Bible Hall of Fame, like this would be in it. So this is Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So these followers who had been with Jesus for years come to the appointed place at the appointed time and they, they have an interaction and encounter with the resurrected Jesus and yet some doubted. This, this verse blew my mind. What? He's right there. <laughs> like, and so if you've ever thought like I have, oh, well, if I would have been around, if I could have seen Jesus personally, like, no problem. I would never have any doubts. Well, maybe not. And so if you, like me, and like any and every Christian I've ever met, have ever experienced some doubt, I wanted someone to tell you that you're in good company. We keep reading in verse 17. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus had been traveling with these folks for years. They had seen firsthand his working of miracles, his, his teaching, the way he was and showed compassion with people. But Jesus had spent years with them, showing them exactly what it meant for him to be the Messiah. Their expectations had been turned upside down, and Jesus is going to continue this trend. Jesus, possessing all authority in heaven and on earth, is about to give it away. In 1887, 
John Dahlberg Acton wrote a letter to an Anglican bishop and said this, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So maybe you're like me and remember that quote from like AP government or something. I thought it was Thomas Jefferson or somebody like, no, it was, it was this fellow. This is a very famous quote and it's a comment on what authority does to people and how it is deployed. One of my favorite philosophers, John Mayer, wrote this in a 2005 song. He said, power is made by power being taken. Not with Jesus. He's gonna give away his authority to his disciples. Earlier, he had told them this, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Well, now that time was almost upon them. Jesus is gonna return back to the Father and he's giving his authority to his disciples and he's leaving his work in their hands. This is an invitation to carry on his mission. See, according to Jesus, the authority flows out from him to others. This mission isn't just for him, it's for many. Methodist founder John Wesley shared this mindset that the work of ministry and the authority to do ministry isn't just for a few professionals, but it should be released to spread scriptural holiness throughout the land, he said. Well, here's the thing, it worked. It worked. A little history from early Methodism, from the, the infancy of our country. In the early to mid-1800s, 35% of the American population was Methodist. Is that One in three! That is a ton. The movement that Wesley had started and ignited had spread like wildfire, wildfire throughout the young United States. But then two things happened. Methodists raised the bar for what it meant to be in leadership, and they lowered the bar for discipleship. I'm going to read you a quote from an article about, uh, from a blog that kind of studies movements of faith. The title of this article wasn't a real happy one. It's called, It Slayed the Movement of the Methodists. Here we go. In 1850, the leaders of Methodism had tired of the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians deriding them as uncouth and unlearned ministers. So they decided that all their circuit riders and local ministers had to complete four years of ordination studies in order to qualify. Growth ceased straight away. Ten years later, they no longer required classes and bands. Methodism has been in decline in relation to the percentage of the population ever since. Now, classes and bands, those were the structures that people were organized in. We could think of them kind of like beefed up small groups, right? These classes and bands were, were groups of people who would meet together to study the Bible, to pray together, to grow through mutual accountability, and to care for each other. Am I on the right track, Pastor? Right? So, so if, if we think that, that it's like signing up for Eventbrite is annoying, right? Do we, that's like, oh, I got to do that. Early on in Methodism, the only way you got to come to worship was if you had a ticket from your class and or band meeting. So you couldn't come to worship unless you had first done your work of discipleship beforehand. Imagine me and Pastor Sherry posted up at the door, like bouncer style, making sure you had your ticket. I mean, that's hardcore. Methodists raised the standard for leadership in the 1850s. 
making it harder for people to, to, to see themselves as equals in ministry because they made pastorship something only a few were qualified for. And then simultaneously, we lowered the bar for discipleship, making it so easy anyone really didn't have to do anything at all. So again, let me state it clearly. We made it hard to be in leadership and easy to do not much else. We concentrated authority in the hands of only a few and removed the capacity for more people to see themselves as every bit as qualified for ministry. To this day, if we're at a church function, Sherry, help me out here, and it's time to pray, what's everybody do? It's like me at the soccer practice. Coach, here we go. You got it. This is far from the model of Jesus who said to his ragtag bunch of followers, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. Now to me, the operative word in this whole passage is go. Jesus is handing over his authority and it's as if he's saying, all right, it's your turn. Your turn. Baptizing folks was Jesus' command. This is the, baptism is the mark of, of entry into the faith, symbolizing so much, representing our, our cleansing of sin and, and our new birth through Jesus Christ. And Jesus told them to baptize and then go and make disciples of all nations. So these people that Jesus had first called to by saying, follow me from the fishing boat, from the tax collector booth, from all over the place, follow me was the beginning of his call. And now he tells them to go. Go make disciples. So this brings up two questions. What's a disciple and how do we make them? Put simply, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. But I think we need to work on this term a little bit because in 2021, following something or someone doesn't cost you anything at all. Like I follow La Fuente on Facebook. It, there's no commitment. There's, there's no, nothing required of me. I do like to keep in touch with the specials and, and get my coops, right? But I can follow a bunch of different restaurants, although why would I want to? No, in, the, in, in 2021, we need to readjust our understanding of the level of following Jesus that discipleship requires. I love how Dallas Willard put it. He was a theologian and author and professor. As Jesus' disciple, I am learning from him how to lead my life as he would lead my life if he were I. So your discipleship isn't just limited to the church thing or, or the prayer thing or the Bible reading thing, although it is those things. Discipleship to Jesus involves every area of your life. It's who you are at work. It's who you are with your family, your colleagues, and your peers. Your discipleship includes who you are online. I'm going to say it again. Your discipleship includes who you are and how you behave online. I will put away the parent voice. In all these areas, we conduct ourselves as if Jesus were in our place. We try to see things the way Jesus would see them. That's discipleship. One of my most vivid memories in my life early on was going with my dad to run errands and we went to the bank. So I'm gonna date myself here. Some of us will remember these. Remember these things? You used to have physically send them back and forth to get a withdrawal at the bank. <laughs> so this, this, this is a sensitive subject. 
Uh, so my dad made a withdrawal and I remember I was pulling out of the bank and he kind of stopped in the parking lot and counted and realized the bank gave him too much money. Now as a third grader, I'm like, comic book store, here we come. Jackpot, man. Dad turned around and he probably saved somebody a rough day at work because the bank tends to notice those types of things eventually. And he gave back the extra money that they had given him. And I was only in elementary school But I remember vividly going, hmm, and observing that what my dad was doing was connecting his spiritual life to his actual life. That's discipleship. Learning from Jesus how to lead my life as if he were in my place. So how do we make a disciple? Well, lucky for us, Jesus covers that. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So making disciples involves both education and action. Jesus said we need to teach folks to obey what he had commanded. Now most people think about discipleship involving the uh, like opening the Bible and understanding what it says. It does involve that. That is part of discipleship. But the end goal of, not, of discipleship is not winning Bible trivia. Like, that's, that's not the whole point. For other folks, discipleship is a verb, like serving others, uh, being an activist for a cause. And, and discipleship is about the good things that we do. And it does involve those things. But friends, there's lots of civic or humanitarian causes where we can do a lot of good, whether it involves Jesus or not. So a lot of times different people will kind of emphasize one thing or the other. We, we tend to have a preference, teaching over obeying or, or vice versa. But friends, that's a false duality. We don't have to make a choice. It's both. Making disciples involves education and action, learning and doing, teaching and obeying. Now, one person who discipled me back in my early youth group days, this is me in the front left, this is what I call PB, pre-beard, like two seats behind me is Bev Bomer. She probably did more for my discipling than any other person. She was a youth leader of mine, and I got to travel around the state and the country in high school during the summer putting on these mission trips. And, and Bev would lead Bible study for students. But, but just, just being with Bev taught me so much. I remember she said that as, as a leader, you were the example, not the exception. I remember that. As, a young, as high schoolers, we weren't exempt from the rules. We were to be examples of those things. And I watched this woman. And now, even in high school, we thought, oh, man, Bev, Bev's got to be getting up there. So I, to this day, don't know how old Bev is. I don't want to. Because I saw her, even though she was uh, certainly one of the, our elders there, I'll put it kindly, Bev was the last person to go to bed and the first person to get up every day for weeks, weeks on these mission trips. Now, she did have a secret weapon. You know when you go to Quick Trip and there's like the 64-ounce mug that somebody's got to carry with both hands? She had that 64-ounce Diet Coke all the time and she, she deserved it. She deserved it. But I'm grateful for Bev and I want to help teach and model what it means to be a disciple the way Bev did for me. We as a church want to help you in your discipleship journey and we actually think that you can help disciple other people, even if that makes you feel like me at the first soccer practice. Now, COVID has thrown a wrench into a lot of our methods, but brighter days are ahead, amen? 
Now, in the before times, like before COVID, you know, we had worked on some of these processes. And, and one of the things we had going on was a spiritual apprenticeship group that I hosted at my house. And we would spend intentional time on discipleship. Well, one of those folks that participated in that was my friend, Anna Lee. There's a picture of her uh, and, and her a friend and godmother, Lisa, from last week at Easter. And then this is a post Anna Lee had this week. She is a teacher in St. Joe. Uh, she's also a part of our leadership team, so she serves in that capacity. But in addition to those big roles, she has a passion for Girls on the Run. This is an organization that uses running and other physical activities with third through eighth grade girls to develop competence, confidence, connection, character, caring, and contribution. Everything from how Annalise serves our church to the career she has chosen to how she volunteers her time and her skills are all drawn from her desire to live as if Jesus were living in her place. Another disciple that's been a huge part of our church and, and what we do is Greg Cox. Greg has a passion for ministries coming alongside those with addiction. And he's led our church's chapter of Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. That provides people with a, with a safe place to find support. This is a crucial ministry and Greg has done so faithfully for so long. I'm proud to say that COVID has not interrupted that very important group's meeting. Now, a big component of AA is relying on a higher power. Well, AA at our church has been a bridge for people to discover or reactivate their relationship with Jesus, that this higher power has a name, our savior, Jesus Christ. This happens with regularity, and I'm so glad that Greg and his crew have said yes to this important mission. Now, both Greg and Annalie have found themselves caught up in God's story. They found themselves following Jesus' call to go and to carry on his work. You know, when I, when I first came to Kearney, and, and this has been confirmed by our experience, my daughter will turn four this year. I'd love to get her graduated from Kearney High School. And I added up how many Sundays that was. It's like 800. I don't have 800 good ideas. Okay? I'll say it on the internet. I don't mind. And so there's churches that, that come up with these series. They just put, say, they'll say, here, use them. This series is one of those. 12 weeks, too. Really got a lot of miles out of it. And the pastor of National Community Church, where this long story short series came out of, he said something I thought was brilliant. He said, we need God to do in our lives what we see in these stories. That there's things that, like the Israelites, we need to be delivered from. We need an exodus in our life. Like, like the people of Israel, we, we look to the wrong things for who should take charge and run our life. We try and make other things king and queen of our lives instead of Jesus. We need a resurrection. We need a new start. We need hope in our lives. So we need God to move to help us live out the truth of the empty tomb. And today we understand that God wants to call us into God's story to carry on the work of Jesus, to continue his mission. That invitation still stands for you and I today. And best of all, are Jesus' final words to his disciples in the book of Matthew. It says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's how the book of Matthew ends. So Jesus starts with follow me and he ends with go. And he promises us 
that he will be with us always. How can you live your life as if Jesus were in your place? That's what being a disciple means. Where is it that Christ is calling you to go and serve and continue his mission? My guess is you're probably closer than you think. And everybody said, amen. Amen.